In this first episode on the Theology of Christianity, I am joined by Matthew Lewis Sutton, who is an Associate Professor in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at St. John's University. In this episode, we discuss his book, Heaven Opens, The Trinitarian Mysticism of Adrienne von Speer, alongside discussions on the Trinity, Obedience, Ignatius of Loyola, Hansa von Balthasar, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making this work possible, and if you would like to support the podcast and gain access to some exclusive content, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Matthew Lewis Sutton, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for um, being able to uh, learn from you and share what I've learned uh, to your audience. We are going to be discussing your book, Heaven Opens, The Trinitarian Mysticism of Adrienne von Speer, who, just so listeners know, we will now be referring to Adrienne von Speer, uh, simply as Adrienne for sort of simplicity's sake. Um so this is a book, as people would imagine, about the mysticism of Adrian, who was, um, I don't want to say under von Balthasar, because he made it clear uh, near the end of his life that his work basically couldn't be separated from hers, even though he has obviously come to far more prominence than she has. And I guess, put very simply, uh, Adrian is a Catholic mystic. Uh, who had visions throughout her life and wrote a phenomenal amount in terms of Trinitarian mysticism. And this is one of the few books uh, on her work, and I believe you're you're writing a uh, sort of a, more of a, an accessible book on her soon. But before we jump into uh, this mysticism, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how this book came about. Yeah, of course. Um, so I grew up in the Midwest in the United States, a uh, rural town, um, um, and just always had the desire to read and would go to the public library all the time and reading and reading. And my um, education uh, led me to um, you know, more reading and got attracted to um, uh, theology. And so uh, my master's and uh, doctorate are in Catholic systematic theology at Marquette University. And in the midst of that study, uh, I uh, loved reading and uh, Balthasar. Um, and my director, uh, Raymond Gronsky, uh, a Jesuit uh, priest who has since passed, um, had suggested I think about this mystic behind Adrian. And usually when Balthasar is presented to you in academic theology, this mystic behind uh, Balthasar is not really uh, spoken about. Um, and the first wave of scholarship on Balthasar uh, primarily said, you do not need Adrienne uh, in order to understand uh, Balthasar. And as I came to read Balthasar's book, two books on Adrienne, uh, he makes it so clear how much she is uh, the more important to him. And really some of the central insights of Balthasar, um, especially, especially his theology of Holy Saturday, um, so the descent of Christ to hell that's in the creed and, and the, the deep uh, ancient meanings of it and a, a new interpretation of that that's so central to her mysticism and um, to his really big theological project um, all comes from, from her in all kinds of uh, important ways. And so uh, that, that then began my study of, of Adrienne and working on her works. And really, it's, um, it took a little bit of a fight in order to uh, get her to be an accepted topic uh, for a theological study, because she was presumed to be a spiritual writer, um, 
and a weird fascination that Balthasar had with her. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, her uh, theology and spirituality are, are intensely profound. Uh, Balthasar recognized that and integrated that into his theology, saying his job was to communicate the tradition with her mysticism. And so I've been writing on her. Uh, the book we're talking about is the first um, really comprehensive book on her spirituality in English. Um, and, you know, thankfully, uh, you know, that's led to uh, a, a career of being able to speak about her and, uh, you know, participate in, in making the argument of her deep importance in um, his theology. Mm. Okay. It's interesting. I feel there could be a whole book written about the, the like, the second the second philosopher or the second theologian where they are behind the person who becomes famous. There's a, there's quite a lot of people throughout history who have that second person who everyone ignores, but when you actually read their work, they sort of say, look, I wouldn't have been like, you can't, you can't split us apart. Um, yeah. But people, and but people commonly ignore them. I think just for ease of not having to deal with two people. Yeah. And, and in our, in our personal lives, uh, friends influence us in all kinds of important ways, especially deep, close, uh, intimate friendships. Uh, that impact how we think. Um, and yet in the official scholarship, you no, know, there's this you know singular mind uh, that comes to all these conclusions and we ignore the, the deep uh, personal friends. I did start talking about um, her being behind him, uh, but you're right, it, for him, um, she's the, the, the front, the, the important. Um, their language that they like to talk about is the double mission, mm -hmm. uh, that there, there are two ecclesial missions um, within uh, the church are so conjoined that they cannot be se separated. A uh, Teresa of Avila and a John of the Cross, mm -hmm. that you cannot separate these two uh, on their own, that they, they belong together and have a mutual uh, influence on each other. And uh, so that's been my argument with, uh, with Balthasar scholarship. Um, and thankfully, uh, we're seeing a, a, you know, a new wave of uh, people realizing that. Um, I find uh, Balthasar very difficult to uh, understand that sometimes because of all of the references that that he uses. And even Adrienne uh, was uh, critical of Balthasar for how obfuscated sometimes he presents his ideas when they can be presented uh, so simply. And so what attracts me and I think what I found when I present about her and I've met people who read her, um, they see in her really the core of, of what Balthasar is also uh, trying to um, argue in, in his theology. But that being said, they belong together. Uh, they mutually um, interpret each other. And so that friendship that happened in, um, began to happen in 1940 with her uh, conversion and then continuing for the next uh, 27 um, years um, and at times he living uh, with her in like a pensione that they, uh, Adrienne had in, in her home, um, that that was uh, an intense friendship, uh, but also he as a spiritual director, um, guiding her um, through this mysticism and different events that were happening in her, in her life and helping to process that. And then um, him creating a whole publishing um, uh, business to uh, shared the, uh, her works, which are 65 in number, um, uh, as far as volumes. Um, so uh, she's a plethora of, of work. And I think we're just starting to process uh, what she's doing as more and more translations are coming out. 65 volumes. I mean, that's just constantly writing and from from sort of the day you begin. 
Yeah, but it didn't start with the the day she began. No, that's um, what I mean. So she converted. Um, okay, we'll, so t- we'll, we'll step back and we'll get to the bottom. Yeah, let's step back. In a because yeah. I just I need to get the Hermetics question out of the way um, okay. at the start. So we may have some other figures who might uh, come into this conversation. Uh, you can place three thinkers or theologians or whoever, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. And uh, I should have put this in the question, but we can include Adrienne and then add three more. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, do you, who do you pick? And they all miraculously speak the same language. I would love that. <laughs> uh, uh, I guess the uh, um, the husband and father of me would like uh, to be in the room with uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and hear how they did domestic life uh, together and and living, you know, profound. Um, anyway, uh, but I really reflected on this and uh, thought that yeah, Adrienne, I would love to be able to meet her in person, and I've had the opportunity to meet people who knew her. Um, in my research. And um, I'd also would love for, um, uh, I would love to meet uh, meet Balthasar and to, to learn from him. Um, so that would be my second. And then um, additionally, uh, the last would be Edith Stein. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Edith Stein for me uh, was a really important um, philosopher and theologian as I was going through my, my graduate studies. And uh, really became uh, a question for me of whether I was going to do an intense study of Edith uh, Stein's work and write on her or, or Adrienne. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what Edith Stein uh, did for me, um, uh, I would love to have in, in conversation with, with Adrienne, um, especially in you know, that dramatic conversion that Edith Stein happens uh, through thought and through the heart, and then eventually um, the religious life of being a, a Carmelite. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 a mystic in in her own uh, in her own way. Okay, okay. Well, it's made me realize exactly where I'm gonna re- where I'm gonna release this episode because we had uh, Edward Baring on recently who who discussed uh, converts to the real was his book, which is a history of Catholic thought in relation to phenomenology. And so okay, Edith Stein was <laughs> right there. So. Well, when I started to examine how much work I would have to do in phenomena, phenomenology to do work on Audrey, uh, Edith Stein, mm. it's like okay, let, yeah. let's let's do Adrienne. Uh, and yeah, that me, and that me, as soon as you <laughs> was it as soon as you realized you'd have to read Husserl. Like, yeah. this isn't this isn't for me. <laughs> no, I cannot. There, I, I I love that that, that my work um, at my university um, at St John's St John's University in New York City. Um, right next to me is Anita Stein scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have had yeah, wonderful conversations about Adrian and Edith, but it would be even better to have Adrian and Edith themselves speak. Okay. Okay. So what, what do you think, um, where do you think that room would, would, uh, head? Where do you think the conversation would head? Do you think there's a common thread that they'd all wish to, to tackle or, or would uh, naturally end up at? Um, so much of Carmelite spirituality uh, is uh, the the Trinity in my heart. Uh, so Teresa of Avila's interior castle is coming deeper and deeper into one's heart. And at the center room in that castle uh, is uh, the uh, the fullness of the Trinity. And in Adrian's spirituality, uh, which we'll be talking about, um, everything is impacted and interpreted through um, the, the Trinitarian uh, love. Mm-hmm. That is of the the father's love for the son, and the son's love for the father, and their mutual love um, springing forth eternally, the Holy Spirit. Um, and so there's so much uh, spiritual connection um, with them uh, that I would find fascinating to to hear them speak about. Uh, but the pathways to that uh, uh, revelation, uh, to that um, insight, 
uh, was so very different for for Adrienne, as we'll get into her um, biography. Uh, it was uh, the simplicity of being, you know, obedient to God, and then living her professional life as a as a physician. And with uh, Edith Stein in her, um, you know, professional work as a um, a philosopher and and teacher, and then coming to um, you know these deep insights by faithfulness to phenomenology, mm-hmm. uh, which I find fascinating that they arrived at this deep connection through very different paths. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Well, I imagine these figures will will most definitely come back in, but to um, to jump back to where we were. Um, so you say it was 1940 she converted uh, Adrienne Uh, before this however she does have some visions of Mary when she's very young Am I, no, I'm yeah. thinking of someone else. Mm-hmm. No, 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 you're correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're correct. So she's born um, in the French-speaking part of Switzerland, mm-hmm. uh, 1902. And um, she has a, a typical Swiss um, uh, background of a higher class. So her um, uh, father was an um, ophthalmologist, an eye, uh, an eye doctor. And so her family was, was well off. But he... Um, uh, soon died. And, um, you know, it's, it's really sad. She had a deep affection for her father, uh, rather than for her mother, who uh, proved to be uh, very hard, especially after after that death. But even before that, um, she has even before the mystical vision that she claims to have about Mary, um, uh, she had a mystical encounter with um, Ignatius of Loyola, St. Ignatius of Loyola. But all that being said, she grew up in a uh, not the reformed state church of Switzerland, uh, but a um, more conservative, um, a reformed church uh, uh, against the state uh, reformed church. So an even more conservative uh, reformed uh, church. Um, and that being said, it was very uh, strict uh, for her. And yet she had, in, in these early times, uh, visions of saints. And then also there's this guardian angel um, that uh, visits her often. So um, so her first mystic. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, would that when you say conservative and strict, do you mean in the sense that they wouldn't be open to visions, saints, and mysticism, and mysticism, and- mysticism? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's taking away from the word and giving glory to God. Oh, so, so, so it was what denomination? Um, oh, I I don't know the the exact term for for it, but um, it wasn't the state uh, sponsored uh, reformed church. Okay. okay. Um, so. Uh, um yeah in fact her her catechism in that um uh in that church uh she reacted very badly to um she um said in um her autobiography that as i was being taught this uh, catechism as a young girl i knew that god was different i knew that he was more profound uh than what i was being uh presented and so that god is different is uh, something of a central insight um, God is different and meaning God is more. God is more than mm-hmm. um, these simple formulas that we memorize and reproduce. Mm-hmm. Because at an early age, she had these uh, profound uh, mystical experiences. There's one with Ignatius when she is six years old. Mm-hmm. Um, she is, um, I'll just say, say this one briefly. Uh, she's on her way with her aunt back home. Um, she decides uh, to go around the long way. Um, and the aunt goes the short way, and on her long way, uh, this old short man with a limp um, uh, comes up to her, um, gently takes her hand, and then asks her, will you come with me? And 
she says, no, it's Christmas time. And she says, Merry Christmas. Uh, but she reflected on that episode and realized um, she wanted to say yes. Mm-hmm. But she said no out of a kind of acceptance that my mom would be furious with me. Mm-hmm. Um, later on in her uh, reflections, when she has her conversion and she starts meeting these different saints, or claims at least meeting these different saints, she recognizes that that old man with the, the limp that was short uh, was Ignatius of Loyola, who had the cannonball uh, break, break his leg and he recovered and that led him to his conversion. Um, and so he, uh, Ignatius becomes a really important figure for her spirituality. And then the next one is, you said it right, in 1917, mm-hmm. the vision of Mary. She was uh, praying, and um, she was going to sleep in her bed and um, Mary appears to her on her wall as this kind of living tableau. And she enters in, uh, into a deep prayer, um, looking at, at Mary and um, receives then, she claims a wound in the top of her heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so this then begins something that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit at least is the stigmata. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you're Catholic, you grew up with uh, 1917 being an important year because that's also the year, year of Fatima, of Our Lady of Fatima. So the same year um, uh, as that, although she didn't know about Fatima growing up, how, yeah, how would she in that environment? But anyway, um, that being said, her uh, life as um, as having these beginning moments of of mysticism, um, you know, were also attached to her being in, uh, very intelligent and pursuing a medical uh, career uh, like her father. And so her um, time in in school, uh, she was very gifted as a student. Usually, though, held back by a lot of severe illnesses, um, scarlet fever. Um, early on, then tuberculosis. Um, and it was when she had tuberculosis as, and was in a um, hospital in the south of, of Switzerland um, that she ended up going to a Catholic church um, for the first time. And she remembers um, the uh, red light, uh, the red candle designating the Eucharistic presence of, of Christ in the church and being attracted to that, um, at the same time, not knowing what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and her recovery of, of tuberculosis, um, you know, was temporary. She ended up contracting it uh, again, but nevertheless, she intently pursued her uh, medical studies and was one of the rare women to complete her medical studies at that time in, in Switzerland. Um, and it was in, in Basel that she was doing this intense uh, medical school. Um, so that was in the, the 20s. And, and um, then in 1931, she begins her uh, medical practice in Basel. Mm. Um, and she marries um, Emil uh, Dürer, a history professor at the University of Basel. He has two children uh, from a previous marriage. He was an uh, older man. She was a just recently graduate medical student. Um, she loved him very much, uh, but she herself... Um, was traumatized by his early death. Um, They didn't live uh, but for um, a few years together, and he died. Uh, She said that was the most challenging thing to her faith. And in fact, um, she ceased praying the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. Uh, She got stuck on the um, word, uh, the line, thy will be done, Mm -hmm. because she didn't want God's will to be done if that meant the death of her husband. so there was a deep hunger still there because uh, her, her Christian faith was, was strong, uh, but her prayer life was not. 
And she marries again um, in 1936, uh, Werner Kegi. So she was a he was an um, assistant professor honor uh, under uh, M.L. Dur. Um, so still at the University of Basel. So she's very connected to that university, even while she's doing the medical practice. And they had, uh, as a family, Werner Kegi and Adrienne, uh, came to know about this um, uh, uh, student chaplain uh, who is gaining more and more popularity at the University of Basel, and that's uh, Hansers von Balthasar. Um, so I'm not sure if, uh, if people are aware, Balthasar's um, station at the University of Basel was not as professor, it was as student chaplain. Um, it was really because of the laws at that time forbidden for a um, Catholic to be a, uh, a theology uh, professor. So he engaged as a, a chaplain uh, and engaged in several dialogues with you know, that important figure, Karl Barth. Um, and uh, Adrienne very much wanted to meet uh, Balthasar because she had uh, started to think about how uh, she wanted to meet a Catholic priest and talk through her, her faith. Um, and it was at a uh, party that her that she hosted, where Balthasar was invited, and she asked to go for a stroll um, along the Rhine, and that's where um, he was. Uh, she revealed that she's thinking about becoming a Catholic, mm-hmm. and uh, in that conversation, Balthasar recognized that the Catholic faith was already there, mm-hmm. the f- and. Um, she explained to him that uh, in her experience of her first husband's death, um, that she had um, contemplated suicide, but she knew that life is a gift and she needed to honor that gift. But she also explained that um, her life of prayers had died. Um, And he explained that, how about we try this? How about we pray uh, for the will to pray thy will be done. That is just the beginning of, of prayer is God give me a desire for prayer. Mm-hmm. And it was in that, um, uh, that walk in, um, in that uh, spring that she then started a, um, a, a few months of catechism with Balthasar who quickly recognized everything was there. He was supplying more of the, the facts and mm-hmm. the, the words uh, but the the faith uh, was there. And so it was um, on the Feast of All Saints in 1940. Um, we're recording this on the Feast of All Saints, 1921, um, or 1921, excuse me, <laughs> uh, 2021, um, you know, uh, which I find great uh, to be able to talk about her. And Balthasar says that at her uh, baptism and then the later receiving of the sacraments, a whole flood of mysticism started to happen into her life. Mm -hmm. So what was just short uh, episodes becomes now um, a a full out um, waterfall of uh, mystical visions, mostly around uh, Holy Week. Um, Progressively, um, her entering into uh, a deep um, uh, interior experience of what it was like for Christ on that, that Holy Week. Uh, culminating with um, the the death and the burial of Holy Saturday. And so these mystical experiences every Holy Week, especially around Holy Saturday, um, became something of um, an importance for Balthasar as he recorded these episodes and 
um, different um, prayers and words that Adrian started to happen. And he realized he needed to have more formal uh, dictations. So uh, quickly in the next uh, couple of years, they began a process of formal dictations. Once a day for maybe a half hour, usually Adrian uh, opening up her Bible, um, uh, going verse by verse and doing a, a deep um, commentary on each of those verses. But in what she claimed as a spiritual communion with, with the saints and with the angels, with the writer. Um, and I can speak more, but maybe there's some uh, questions you might have you know, up to this point. Mm-hmm. Well, the only thing I was going to say is I have to admit that it wasn't actually Adrienne who I was thinking of in terms of the vision of Mary. I was thinking of, and I can't remember uh, her name, but it was uh, someone who was also young and had a vision of Mary by a river. And that place then became... The water there, but then became blessed. But I oh, can't, Bernadette, Bernadette of Lourdes, yeah. So uh, the the revelation of Our Lady of Lourdes. So mm. not but a, a few miles away in the, oh, really? the south of France. Yeah, um, yeah, but much earlier. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So he, yeah, here she is, is another young uh, lady having a, a revelation of of Mary, um, but she didn't. Com- she spoke uh, very much early on that Mary is the most important for her. Obviously, Christ is the, the center, uh, but Mary, as as her mother, um, became something really important in the whole of her life, um, mm-hmm. and that is what Mary expressed in in her life of obedience of, um, be it done to me according to your word, mm-hmm. uh, not according to her own word, but according to um, the word uh, from the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. I mean, it's interesting. This is one of the things that stood out in your in your book that, as you've now said, that these readings that she undertook with von Balthasar, uh, and obviously we now have, as you said, these 65 volumes of her work. Um, do you think there is an importance of oral teaching for Adrienne in terms of that th- these are meant to actually be read aloud? Yeah, what I find um, important is that reading aloud for her because of how they were produced. Um, it was in the in the quiet of Adrian's home um, every morning, uh, pretty much of her in, entering into prayer, opening up uh, mostly a scripture, um, and then going verse by verse and then commenting on it. The their greatest work, um, or her greatest work, is the a four volume commentary on the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. And so each verse of the Gospel of John, you know, receives uh, three to five pages. Um, of of deep commentary um, and some of it being very practical, uh, others of it being uh, deeply uh, uh, profound uh, mystically. And so, the the simplicity of of her writing, I think, comes from the the oral way that it was given. Whereas when we're writing uh, by ourselves, we're not always thinking about how this will will sound. But as she's communicating, she's communicating more not for it to be written, but communicating it to Balthasar and then Balthasar uh, writing it down. Um, there's only a few works of hers that are her direct uh, pen, her autobiography, um, and then her letters. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, uh, most of it is given uh, in, in in spiritual direction of, of Balthasar asking, um, uh, like there's one of these works, uh, one of her works, uh, there's um, these posthumous works that Balthasar published after her death. Mm-hmm. And one of them is called Book of All Saints. Mm-hmm. And so Balthasar would name a saint and um, she, uh, he would then ask, 
can you please tell me about this, the saint and his prayer in heaven? And so then she starts, I see the saint, uh, whoever it might be, and starts articulating, you know, the, the kind of prayer that this saint has um, in heaven. Uh, and, and so there you can, uh, you can see how their, their, their missions are so tied together that Balthasar would lead her um, to let's speak about this topic or this um, book of scripture. And then uh, really she becomes this conduit of, of, of insight. And if you claim uh, that it could be possible, you know, this mystical, these mystical insights. Um, for myself as an academic theologian, um, it, uh, I, I do believe that there are, are miracles and that there is mysticism, um, you know, that has occurred. So I'm open to that. Mm-hmm. Um, at the at the same time, I, I need to be critical of oh, what is being said uh, by her and claimed by her uh, must be investigated, and I think that's important. That um, maybe we can get into a little bit, but um, mysticism is often not accepted in academic theology. No. Not at all. Well, uh, or, there's a there's a there, there's a difficulty of this in uh, not so I've I, there's there's, a, there's someone. Um, soon to come on in the podcast in the new year uh, who writes about near-death experiences and he says that one of the problems okay. that he has in writing about these in the academic setting is that they are immediately not taken sincerely as they would have been by the person in their culture at the time so we immediately subsume these experiences into the postmodern deconstructionist way of thing or the current contemporary way of seeing things so and i think that's a, a huge an obvious clear academic disservice even to them they should be taken i think on face value first because otherwise all the context is removed um so yeah yeah, so yeah it's i think a difficulty that... to it's a difficulty of study because as you say you have to be critical but then surely critic you know being critical is being able to take it well how how else can we understand it as a you know if we're not understanding it how they quite literally did yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah this the the seriousness of the claim demands investigation Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't presume a conclusion of its acceptance, but it does demand uh, a, uh, an investigation and an openness uh, to it. Um, Balthasar talked about the greatest um, schism that happened in Christianity wasn't the, the great schism between the Orthodox and Catholics uh, or the Protestants and Catholics, but was the divorce uh, between what he called sitting theology mm-hmm. and kneeling theology. Mm-hmm. That is uh, academic theology, and then what usually gets called uh, spirituality and mysticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the sitting and the kneeling um, are are both needed in the fullness of the uh, Christian life, mm-hmm. and those uh, were uh, divorced in the uh, desire for theology to be accepted in um, a secular academy. Mm-hmm. And if mysticism is uh, being studied. Um, it's being studied in um, other uh, scientific methods. So um, like psychologically, um, so this was a, a really important um, you know, movement in the study of, of mysticism in the early uh, 20th century, um, psychological studies, um, historical critical uh, studies. So thinking about, um, often it's called comparative Christian spirituality. So taking different spiritualities and trying to see through ways and influences and mm-hmm. um, outliers and main threads. Um, uh, some uh, recently uh, pneumatological studies um, of, of mysticism, but um, a, a serious theological consideration of, of mysticism is um, 
has been difficult. Uh, I experienced it having some difficulties in just even this being a accepted topic of a modern mystic, a 20th century spiritual writer being considered in an academic uh, theological realm. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are established um, ancient mystics mm -hmm. um, that are accepted, you know, the Meister Eckhart's, oh, sure, go ahead and do a study uh, of him. Uh, he's he's profound and and worthy of study. But to think about somebody who is a professional a woman, uh, uh, had a very successful medical practice, uh, married, uh, children, um, and yet she's claiming all of these you know, um, amazing mystical experiences. Um, this seems to be a direct affront to uh, modernistic uh, ways of, of seeing you know, the academic life hmm. um, and even in professional theology. And so all, I think for myself, um, uh, you know, therefore it's all the more important to consider this missing source, the source, you know, put out on, onto the edges, uh, because in our human experiences, this is not such a, a divorce, uh, between, you know, something profound that I cannot explain and then a formal study. Um, okay. Okay. And how, how did Adrienne understand mysticism? Was she, uh, did she, did she hold it at arm's reach to a certain degree? Um, yeah, uh, excellent question. So, um, she had, I think, a very deep reflection on her own mystical experiences and mysticism uh, uh, in general. Um, she, two of her posthumous works that Balthasar published is called Subjective Mysticism and Objective Mysticism. And this is uh, for her um, two ways of interpreting mysticism. That is subjective mysticism, considering how the, the, uh, the person themselves is interpreting the vision that they're receiving. And she would take, for example, um, Paul as a great example of this, that his vision of the uh, resurrected Christ is very much a personal reflection of, of himself. You know, here I was uh, a Pharisee Jew persecuting Christians and the resurrected Christ. Uh, um, so he's speaking about himself in the midst of this uh, vision. For her, then objective mysticism would be an example of that would be John, where John disappears um, in his telling of uh, of Christ and of the the miracles around around Christ, um, he disappears in um, even on the uh, crucifixion scene that he writes. He's beloved disciple. He, he doesn't say, "I, John, was there experiencing uh, this crucifix." He wants to disappear, um, and so I think she had that kind of um, understanding of the difference between um, uh, mysticism in that way. But even more so, um, she speaks about how, uh, above all, the, the mystic or the one experiencing these visions needs to be obedient to the church and to the authorities and to the, the doctrine that, is placed, that has been placed there by Christ. So in Christian spirituality mysticism, there are different mystical movements that the figurehead um, is in opposition to. Uh, ecclesial authority for her uh, um, that's not uh, supposed to be the case that all uh, revelation uh, flows from uh, the trinity um, and leads to the trinity and so if the the mystical vision is leading away from trinity and his his church it must be something other or being badly interpreted by that by that figure 
um, in the end, uh, um, in the end, she wants to um, submit all of her personal uh, mystical experiences to the the authority of of the church. Um, but it seems, am I right in thinking that it's less these mystical experiences are less of a uh, a direction or an effort from us as opposed to an opening which allows allows how can I say hmm it's yeah, an opening I, <laughs> heaven opening as opposed to us yeah. sort of. Uh, emanating from us right yeah so um her mysticism or her spirituality sometimes these terms are um uh, the same for her but um i'll explain the difference later uh for her and the and the image that i use in the book heaven opens um mm. is her spirituality of um ascent a s s e n t mm. rather than a um christian spirituality which is alive and has a historical study uh or excuse me a great historical impact of ascent a-s-c-e-n-t um saint john uh, climacus would be an example of this of the divine ladder mm -hmm. um teresa of avila would be an example of this in the interior castle that there are steps that one progresses up um, in order to ascend um a-s-c-e-n-t uh to a greater and greater experience of of heaven um but for her, um, her spirituality centers around Mary, and Mary's not practicing some ascetical practice of, of life in order to obtain greater and greater union with God. Um, heaven intervenes in her life and in her whole plans, and she assents to it, A-S-S-E-N-T. Um, uh, uh, she says yes to, to that and accepts it and all of its concrete um, manifestations. So just to pause on that. For for Adrienne, uh, her um, her mysticism is of a concrete. Uh, the way she experienced it or articulated was of such a concrete experience of um, sometimes not recognizing that it is heaven intervening in her life. Um, sometimes they were extraordinary, and she would recognize this is otherworldly supernatural. But other times, it would come to her so naturally that. At times, she would start speaking to um, Balthasar. Talks about this. Uh, they were at a dinner table, and Adrian starts speaking to somebody that Balthasar clearly acknowledges is not there. And Balthasar asks, well, "Well, who are you talking to?" And she says, "I'm not sure, but here's what we're talking about." Hmm. And uh, Balthasar, in his scholarship, you know, recognizes it's Saint Gregory of Nyssa, and the kind of terms and things that he was articulating to her. And so um, one reaction to the would be that person is crazy. Uh, at the, uh, the other uh, way to think about it too is, you know, here's a successful uh, physician, uh, quite a camp, uh, accomplished uh, woman professionally, but also um, you know, living a deep family life and, and a love for these children and, and her husband and, and her neighborhood, having and claiming to have uh, such you know, profound um, experiences that I think for for um, for Balthasar were stunning, and uh, however for Adrienne were normal. Mm -hmm. So, did did she ever comment on as to why they couldn't become normal for say like everyone? Yeah, um, uh, one of the um, concepts I talk about in in the book is um, oftentimes, at least in uh, Catholic uh, mysticism, it's spoken about as uh, there are a few select mystics who are given these extraordinary experiences. 
Uh, but for the rest of us, um, the beatific vision of seeing God as he is, uh, is reserved for heaven. Mm -hmm. However, in the strain in Eastern Orthodoxy uh, called Hysikas spirituality, mm -hmm. um, the, the experience of theosis, of becoming godlike, um, Saint Seraphim of Serov is an example of it. Um, that in this spirituality, the, the beatific vision is already happening to the one who gives himself over obediently uh, to, to God. And that God doesn't withhold the vision of himself for heaven. He already starts exposing that uh, in glimmers uh, to those that become more and more um, obedient to him and open to him that he could communicate in this way. So for her, it can be experienced by everyone. Mm -hmm. But because of hesitancy, uh, a lack of openness, so she's it's not she's, experienced by everyone. She's sympathetic to the theosis of the, the that Orthodox strain. Yeah. Uh, how um, how did Balthazar and the the Catholic Church feel about that? Is was the errors well, of compatibility? Yeah. So um, uh, Balthazar had his own complicated uh, relationship <laughs> with the, with the church. Um, and, and different authorities um, because of his, his theology and other dynamics going on uh, in the Catholic church in the 20th century. Um, you know, that being said, her mysticism was not presented in her life as something really profound. The first books that were being published looked like um, spiritual commentaries on a scriptural book. Um, and there was not a claim of um, any kind of uh, um, mystical origin of them. They were, here's a really intense uh, spiritual reflection on, um, on Paul's letter to the Ephesians mm -hmm. um, or what have you. Um, it was, um, af um, and, uh, you know, uh, something I didn't get into their biography was they started a, a community, a religious community called the Johannes Gemeinschaft, the community of St. John. It began as a small group of a priest branch and then a men's um, branch and a, a women's branch that were that were lay, a small a small group. Um, but they were very close to Balthazar and Adrian. And after Adrian's death, um, Balthazar published uh, the book First Glance at Adrian von Speer. And and for your listeners, that's a good place to start. Um, in learning about her, if you'd like to, to do that. First Glance at Adrian von Speer by Balthasar. And in that, he um, gives a biography of her life and also then starts talking about her mysticism and some of the more um, extreme forms. And that community that they had founded did not know all of this. Um, I interviewed one of the first um, members of that, um, uh, Frau Capel, uh, who was Balthasar's secretary. Mm -hmm. So very close uh, to them both. Mm -hmm. um, and she did not know of the stigmata, the exterior, the externalized stigmata. Um, and I asked, well, how, how would that even be possible? Is there, did you, you, do you want to uh, just expand on the, sti the stigmata? Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. Um, um, you know, uh, later on in, in her life, um, she experienced um, a non-exteriorized uh, stigmata, that is feeling the pain of the nails and the crown, um, but it not manifesting on, on, on the flesh. Mm -hmm. uh, but then later in her life, as sickness uh, started to grow, and especially during Holy Week, um, Balthasar claimed that uh, that stigmata would become um, exteriorized, you know, noticeable blood on the, on the hands. Um, 
And um, um, so I asked uh, Frau uh, uh, Koppel um, about that. How could you not have seen this? And she says, I, I do realize that she often wore gloves. Uh, she wore bandages on her hand. Um, and I never thought to ask uh, why that why that was. So in her life, um, it was not revealed much about her, her mysticism. Mm-hmm. She was presented as a um, spiritual writer and founder and, you know, an otherwise amazing woman. Um, so then Balthasar wrote um, another book on her um, called Our Task. Mm-hmm. And he explains even more about her mystical life, her spiritual life. Um, and then also contained in there is the founding documents of this community. Um, and, and so it, it really became later in her life or later in um, his life that he made, as he said, all of the rest of my work um, about her and promoting her. And that's where we start to see, um, you know, people, uh, you know, encountering her and not just her writings, but also, you know, these spirit, these uh, mystical claims. Um, she um, uh, grew in um, that, uh, I should say, her, her influence uh, on Balthazar and these uh, mystical claims uh, touched um, Pope John Paul II. Um, who became aware of this through uh, his reading and uh, friendship with Balthasar. And so Balthasar hosted a academic conference on Adrienne and her writing, and Pope John Paul II spoke at it. Mm. And he said, you know, truly she is a woman who lived um, in heaven on earth. Uh, that her, her experience of the, um, her way on, on earth was a profound living already in heaven. Mm-hmm. And this one, one thing that really interests me. I'm jumping forward a bit in the questions, but I think yeah, whatever works fit in here. This is one thing that you you have mentioned as in terms of that uh, in relation to the importance of Mary. But this seems to be this this uh, I don't want to say ability because that's a bit cheap, but this ability to retain these mystical experiences within this community and not sort of I, I guess make a big deal out of them, but also retain them within uh, theological bounds within a serious uh, theological. Um, sort of rigorous study of them almost with these uh, talks with Balthazar seems to actually come from her understanding of obedience right? of not mm-hmm. allowing the shall we say not allowing the personal mysticism the subjective experience to sort of uh, run away with itself and she's she always remains um, obedience almost as a sacrament itself to mm-hmm. uh, to what is going on yeah, th- I think that's uh, really profound. That obedience is a really central theme in the whole of her writing, uh, but the the theme of obedience um, is a, a manifestation of her Ignatian spirituality. So Ignatius of Loyola is a very important figure for her, and really important part of Ignatian spirituality is obedience, uh, obedience to the will of God, uh, but ultimately obedience um, to the the church. And so in, in Ignatius's spiritual exercises at the end uh, of it uh, is a, a section on uh, thinking with the church. And in that, um, he has this uh, great line uh, or uh, horrendous line, depending on your, on your view. If the, the church says the color is black and you think it is white, the, the color is black. Um, and that's uh, so important to, you know, uh, early Ignatian um spirituality and i think she took that as something real that 
I can be fooled in my senses. I can be fooled in uh, what I um, am saying I'm experiencing, mm. but that the um, that the um, whole of Scripture is a revelation of God Himself in profound ways that go beyond uh, our senses. That because of the profundity of it, uh, we have to accept them. Mm. Uh, that's her her view, her language. Um, that that heaven is more real, um, that the, the Trinity's love for me and wanting to reveal himself to me is more real um, than so much of, of perceived reality. It's uh, like somebody telling you, you don't have a, a mother and you're being held in your mother's arms. Mm-hmm. Um, how can I, if the world is denying that I'm being held in my mother's arms and yet I'm feeling um, you know, that, that hug, that love, how can I, how can I deny that? Um, so while she wouldn't insist over against a church authority, uh, nevertheless, she would persist in, uh, you know, articulating, this is how I experienced, uh, this vision. Mm-hmm. Um, so herself, not making the judgment herself, making the evidence, giving the evidence. Is that sort of the same type of conclusion that Stein came to? Um, Boy, um, I'm not. Apologize, that's quite. Yeah, I think uh, I think I'd, I'd love to have my friend, um, uh, Sister Mary Maskalek, uh answer that. Um, okay. Yeah, uh, but uh, you know, I I do know from um, you know uh, thinking about and 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 following uh, you know following um, you know Adrienne uh, and her understanding her understanding of prayer is um, thinking with the church means I'm thinking in the, the ways of God. And this is very uh, much not the words of, of, of our time where obedience and giving over my thought to, to another um, is not revered. And it is an example of, of um, uh, not accepting responsibility maybe for your, for your own thought. Uh, what for her though is uh, I don't surrender my intelligence. I don't surrender my powers. Uh, but I do understand that I'm finite, that I'm limited. Mm-hmm. And that the grace of the sacraments uh, open me up in my powers and my ability to understand more. Uh, maybe we could touch into a little bit of, well, what makes her mysticism Trinitarian? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, for uh, for her um, uh there isn't as strict of a, a boundary between, let's say, a public revelation and private uh, revelation. That all of it is is revelation um, from from the Trinity, um, and ultimately the awakening of faith in me is that my I is encountering the Thou of God, mm-hmm. and the 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 chasm of my I encountering this Thou of God. I see where I am limited. Um, and yet there's a hunger within me for the infinite and that in her, uh, Trinitarian thought, it's the Holy spirit that, um, enters into, um, her, uh, life and to her heart that gives her this, uh, infinite, uh, this desire to be one with the one with the infinite and that it is the Holy spirit with within her that awakens and converts her to, uh, Christ and to seeing as the sun sees. 
so that my eye is being overtaken by the son who sees the father um, uh, eternally as he's generated from the father eternally. Um, he is envisioned with the father, um, you know, forever and ever. And so the, the, the saint, the mystic is uh, growing in the spirit who is uh, transforming them into the son that then is seeing the father. And that process happens in, in baptism and is renewed in the sacraments uh, daily. That uh, when we receive, let's say, the, the Eucharist, mm. we're being transformed into the Son who then uh, sees uh, the, the Father and is one with the Father um, in the Spirit. Or the other um, sacraments, like for her, um, all of the, the sacraments are, are Trinitarian and interpreted, uh, interpreted um, Trinitarianly. And so one of the most profound for her is the sacrament of, of confession, of reconciliation, of, you know, the, uh, the good Catholic going to the confessional and confessing their sins and the priest saying, I absolve you. Um, so here, her understanding of that is uh, what I'm ultimately entering into is the son's confession of sin to the father, that he on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I am that son who's confessing. Uh, all of the sin uh, to uh, to the Father, mm-hmm. and that uh, that um, drive to confess that is coming to the Spirit who convicts me. Um, that uh, then convicted uh, Christ to go to uh, the desert to face those temptations that drove him to the cross uh, to um, confess the. Uh, uh, to confess uh, that the world has sinned and that He's offering His life. Um, as a sacrifice for all. Uh, and so I think, um, you know, for her, uh, the, the, um, the, her mysticism is, is so Trinitarian. And, um, and the goal of this book is to show how uh, profound it is for Trinitarian theology, properly so. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that there isn't something of a, of a discord between academic Trinitarian theology and then her Trinitarian mysticism. That in fact, it's deeply uh, feeding um, academic reflection on uh, a theological reflection on on the Trinity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what is the what is the relation to this to to, to freedom? Because some people might, I don't know, perhaps read this as something quite constraining or a bit overwhelming in the sense of how does this allow for for mm-hmm. Adrian to sort of enter into a greater freedom in relation to yeah, God? I think that's wonderful. Uh, you know, for myself, I, I teach um, 18 and 19 year olds um, at my university, and uh, I think their interpretation of freedom is uh, free to be dumb. Um, hmm. And, you know, I love them and care for them and, uh, you know, try to be a good teacher to them. Um, so there is that aspect, especially in the United States, of um, uh, freedom means uh, complete autonomy. And that is an aspect of, of freedom, is that I'm an autonomous individual uh, that no one has a say over what I think and do. But for for her, and this is also true of Balthasar, that um, the uh, the autonomy of freedom uh, finds its realization in choosing. Um, that is, the the perfection of freedom is actually choosing a path over and against uh, others. Mm-hmm. Or or her language would uh, would be uh, when I say um, yes, like Mary, when I say yes to God, uh, the full expression of that is. Without hesitation, a full yes being given, uh, and so freedom is a gift in order to make a choice. The freedom isn't the end in of itself. The freedom is 
I am now uh, away from the constraints. I'm away. I'm out of Egypt. So then able to make a, a choice uh, to follow, to follow God, to go to his, his promised land and leave the land of Egypt behind. Um, and, uh, and so for her, you know, freedom is the pathway to the, the full obedience and is not an opposition. Oftentimes freedom and obedience are put in opposition uh, to each other, mm. but for her freedom is the pathway um, towards uh, an obedient love that uh, perfects the soul and uh, is the way of love where I'm mm. choosing to love the, love this one and be love uh, for them. Okay. I like that though, that freedom, freedom isn't, you know, a means in itself. It's not the end in itself. That probably seems to be the primary problem of the contemporary world. In my opinion is that people take, you know, once you're free, it's like, well, I'm free. So it's all good. But actually you don't have this realization that, well, we're okay, but what are you actually now doing? You know, what are you doing? It ends in, it? Yeah, it ends in a, in and a that kind of you have to, That too. means you have to keep intensifying the freedom for greater and greater freedoms. Otherwise, yeah. you feel like it's sort of dulled or nulled or something like that, right? So that's probably why people are continually, continually yeah. like almost like a feedback loop of sin. <laughs> yeah. Well, then um, uh, Adrian and, and Balthazar kind of um, talk about the obedience of the corpse. Um, that, 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 that quest for freedom, yeah, uh, has to deal with the reality of death. Mm -hmm. um, that we are no longer autonomous. Uh, our, our corpse is, um, is being taken beyond our, our, um, our will, mm -hmm. uh, by another. Um, and, uh, I think, um, you know, for her, uh, her belief in, in the afterlife, her belief in heaven, her belief in, uh, her ultimate destiny, destiny in the Trinity, um, you know, death is, uh, this thing to be looked forward to. Uh, it's a final act of of obedience um, to God and to His path for creation and and my redemption. Mm. That then on the other side of that is uh, the full vision of of the Trinity in communion with with the saints, with the holy ones. Mm. Okay, one qu one question I have now is um, Adrian's this Trinitarian mysticism and I guess her theology seems to focus on uh, openness, on angels, on mm. love on the trinity of course and of uh, being more open to the mystical elements of of heaven does she ever take i mean of 65 volumes i'm assuming that she does at some point but to what extent does she read or understand what would commonly be considered uh, the the harsher elements of mystical practice such as you know her understanding of the devil or her understanding <laughs> of sin or her understanding of hell it seems that she, in her mystical practice, she has an emphasis on these things, um, perhaps not as an avoidance, but as uh, an overcoming. You know, the mm -hmm. good, the goodness overcomes the, the emphasis of the goodness overcomes, you know, that other thing. But it seems almost like that other thing is yeah. tucked away at the moment. Oh, interesting. Um, and maybe that's because I'm not doing a good uh, representation of her, because <laughs> hell is a very important uh, okay. uh, concept in her theology. And so um, the next book that's coming out. Okay. So, with it, okay, on, so then within the limits of this book, within this book, it just yeah. it didn't need to play a huge role. Okay. Yeah, okay. exactly. So, so this next book that is coming out, um, Compassionate Presence um, on her Trinitarian spirituality, it'll be on, um, it's going to be released in spring by Angelical Press. Um, so that's a press here in Brooklyn. Um, and that's all on her theology of Holy Saturday and is trying to be a, a comprehensive, which means um, 
uh, her understanding of Christ's descent to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, this is this mysticism of, of um, that Christ did not rise from the cross. Christ rose from hell. That is the, the three days of, of his burial mm-hmm. um, are deeply important for understanding um, understanding who God is that even hell is taken within uh, Trinitarian love. This, this place of no to God, um, the son descends to and says yes to a uh, yes to the father, even here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, just as a, a little bit of history uh, background and, and the Catholic church, uh, at least at the beginning of history, there, there was a minor interpretation of the theology of hell as Christ descending into hell as a real experience of, of um, uh, the, the, the torture and the pain of being absent from God. So mm-hmm. he as God himself being absent from God mm-hmm. and that he, is, that he is experiencing the silence of God in God himself. Mm-hmm. The major trend, um, this comes out of Eastern Christianity, but became the dominant theology also in the West, is that the descent into hell is a victory of um, freeing the Old Testament saints, you know, the Moseses and the Aaron's and the Davids that have been imprisoned um, in this kind of Sheol, this underworld. So now that the gate of heaven is open by his redemptive death, uh, they can rise up and enter into uh, that eternal life that's been promised to them. Mm-hmm. That became the major interpretation throughout Christian history of the descent of Christ into hell, that it is um um, a descent of victory of the king who's claiming the territory of, of his saints who've been imprisoned by Satan. And now he has the keys, he releases the saints and they, they ascend with him. And so hell then becomes the, the permanent abode of, of the damned. But there has been in Christian spirituality, the, um, and that's the catechisms, um, uh, the catechism of the Catholic Church interpretation of that part of the creed. But there has been this minor um, uh, spirituality of uh, the descent into hell is the continuation of the horrible torture of the cross. Mm-hmm. And then it's only on the, the dawn of Easter Sunday that the true victory and redemption um, occurs. Mm-hmm. That as he, as he takes his first resurrected uh, breath, that this is the, the victory that he has won by taking um, within himself all of sin on the cross and all of the consequences of sin um, that is being you know, thrust into um, Sheol, the underworld, mm-hmm. hell. Okay. And that in that experience uh, in her spirituality um, is that subjectively, the son uh, feels abandoned by the father. So on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? For her becomes something real. Um, that is subjectively he's experiencing the the absence of the father such that he's not referring to him as father Abba on the cross. He's referring in that death, he's referring to him as God. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she sees a a deep chasm, at least subjectively that is being experienced by the son. Objectively son is one with the father and the spirit, but uh, subjectively, He's experiencing that absence. He's feeling the consequences of sin, which is absence from God. And uh, she interprets that when Jesus breathes 
his last breath on the cross. That's him not, um, you know, just breathing out a, a physical breath, but is a breathing out of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Spirit back to the Father. Mm-hmm. And so it's a breathing upward to the Father, so to speak, of the the, the Spirit uh, that has um, been in him, uh, that has led him, led him to this cross, even even the spirit is being, uh, you know, breathed out uh, to the father. Um, so for her, a lot of this language is literary, metaphorical, and isn't uh, talking about a kind of div- uh, object of divorce within God. Um, she's still, you know, profoundly monotheistic in, in her Trinitarian theology. I want to make, uh, make that really clear. But that's her emphasis is subjectively he's experiencing the consequences of these sin, this abandonment um, of God. And that in that no of hell, he speaks his yes to the father, even there being obedient, uh, not just to the cross and even death on the cross, but even in uh, hell, the place of abandonment, the the place of no to God. He speaks even there his yes. Um, And it's that speech of, of yes as um, that the father has been longing for the world to give. Um, he now is speaking that word to the father mm-hmm. okay. and that's, that's where he's, he's redeemed. So yeah, hell, uh, and the consequences, um, of, of sin are a deep part of, of her spirituality. Um, and also I think, uh, my book is arguing one of the most important things for, um, for our current times. Um, that uh, especially having gone through the pandemic where there's been a forced loneliness uh, given to so many people uh, in the lockdown um, that even more so we need um, the presence, not just of others, but that even God himself took this intense loneliness uh, Mm -hmm. into himself. Keep thy mind in hell and despair not. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember who else is who else said something along the lines of best place to find God is in a way is in hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where you've got the most need, the most sort of reaction. Um, so one sort of final question, um, I guess it's my own sort of constant focus on practicality in a way. Um, did Adrienne ever comment on, you know, often, often, you know, for instance, we, we take uh, Ignatius he 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 has spiritual exercises. Um, he has this text of quite practical mm-hmm. spiritual exercises. Yeah. Kierkegaard. There is a there is a book of Kierkegaard's prayers. Um, and throughout all these these sort of mystical thinkers, you will find um, often texts or even pamphlets of here was their practice. Did Adrienne um, promote any form of specific practice, or what was her what what would be her emphasis? of spiritual practice for, for the, for the layman. Yeah. I think, uh, one of her, um, uh, short thematic works is, is on prayer, um, uh, a book of prayer and she imagines, uh, different people and then speaks their prayer. So one who's sick, uh, one who is, uh, about to get married, one who is, um, uh, at their, at their deathbed, um, uh, on my website on Adrienne, I have a few of these prayers, and one of them is um, enduring the the dullness of a priest giving a homily. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a beautiful prayer of um, 
uh, even here in this in this frail uh, priest and his words, please help me to hear your words, uh, O oh God. So her, so even as we've talked about uh, really uh, some you know profound mysticism, mm-hmm. her spirituality, her daily uh, life of of um, spirituality was practical. Mm-hmm. That I am in in heaven on earth, and that means when I'm um, holding um, a, a dying patient, I I am free to pray with them. Um, either in in silence or or verbally, uh, and she does you know speak about the the practicalities of of living a life of prayer of um, especially for her uh, being close to scripture, and, and I think this is where um, something re- is really important. And here you have a professional laywoman, uh, married, uh, children, um, who has this you know, amazing um, mystical life, and yet. Uh, she lived it out practically, um, doing good for her, for her patients, doing good for for her neighbors, and um, the joy of that family. Uh, Balthasar talks about was um, so uh, attractive, and their place became a place of um, really home, a, a harbor for for a lot of uh, wandering students uh, around the University of Basel. And so, the practicality of her spirituality was something uh, real. Um, in the Christian spirituality uh, tradition, um, she would be labeled as Ignatian um, and Marian. Um, that is the importance of uh, and uh, the importance of yes of Mary with Ignatius, the importance of of obedience. But also, um, her community chose the name of John. Uh, her major work is on the Gospel of John, um, so her spirituality would also be labeled as Joannine. Um, mm. John is, uh, is so important of, I want to disappear into the church so everything of my life becomes about Christ. Hmm. Is there anything else you, you, you would like to add about, uh, about this book specifically? Um, yeah, I love this book and I love how uh, I've met uh, different readers uh, um, you know, throughout, the, um, throughout the world that have read it, professional uh, theologians interested in her, but also... Um, um, just curious, uh, educated people, and uh, them contacting me through uh, through my websites has been wonderful, uh, a real treat. Uh, this next book that's coming out um, is going to be a lot more accessible um, to a, to a wider audience. Um, this book that we're talking about is uh, definitely for the uh, professional theologian and gets uh, pretty technical at, at certain points. Um, this next book is an attempt to articulate her um, uh, her spirituality in a more accessible uh, form. And I hope therefore to uh, continue to popularize her and her importance for today. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, one thing I would say just to listeners is, is uh, of this podcast, I found this book fairly accessible mm. and I don't, I don't know theology oh, all that well. So I found this fairly accessible just to say. Oh, um, oh thank you. I, and I have received that from, from others. Uh, I remember this uh, lady in uh, California, she said, I'm an atheist and, um, I had this dream and that dream was the picture of your book and I found it and I had to buy it. And I just want to talk to you, talk to you about it. Uh, and so I'm, I'm impressed that uh, you found it accessible, but also, you know, um, this lady uh, found it accessible. Um, so then maybe this one will be even more accessible. <laughs> maybe. Are you working on anything else other than this book or is this your um, right now, the the focus is really getting this this out. Um, okay. I would lo- the next book was going to be about her um, Marian uh, spirituality. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so you're aiming for spring. 
Yeah, this will be out in the, the spring with Angelico Press. Okay, okay. Compassionate Presence. Um, if, if your audience would like to find out about it, um, they mm -hmm. could go to uh, my website, uh, drsutton.net. Dr. Sutton.net. That's that just, spelled out, doctor. Just, okay, spelled out, doctor. Okay, yeah. Spelled out, Dr. Sutton, S-U-T-T-O-N, uh, .net. Um, and then also I'd uh, recommend uh, another website that I run, Adrian Von Spare, uh, .net. Um, that That isn't as updated, but that has basic information. And then uh, a friend of mine has designed another website um, uh, that's uh, coming out of the archives of Balthasar and Adrian. And that's called balthasarspare.org. So balthasarspare.org. Um, and that has and a growing amount of archival um, documents from both of them. Okay. Okay. I'll um, be sure to put those links in the description. But um, I appreciate it. Matthew Lewis Sutton, thanks very much. Thank you, James.